Welcome to the Stratcom Podcasts. I'm your host, Kubra Akkoç, a journalist at TRT World. Today, we'll talk about strategic communication and information warfare. Joining me now is James P. Farwell, who is an expert in information warfare, influence operations, and cyber policy and strategy with a geotopical expertise in the Middle East, North Africa, and Pakistan. Mr. Farwell, thanks for your contribution. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with basics of strategic communication. You wrote a book called Persuasion and Power, The Art of Strategic Communication. Tell us more about what are the basis of strategic communication. That's a great question. Strategic communication uh, can be defined as follows. It's the use of words or action, images or symbols in order to influence opinions, to shape behavior in order to achieve a desired effect, or if you use a military jargon, in state. There's a lot of confusion about the word, and people, I think, too often get hung up on procedural types of definitions. But I think if you keep it simple that way, it's a lot, a lot easier. And information warfare is the use of information to conduct warfare. And the target, the battle space, I should say, within which information warfare takes place is the brain. Yeah, it's a very intriguing topic for us, like information warfare. And today we are seeing many different examples of that, like with the pandemic, digitization of information also got to a like, brand new, new level now. And I think you have also an article like saying countering Russian meddling in the U.S. political processes, right? This is about information yes. warfare. Tell us more about this article. I read a little bit of it. You're introducing a team of teams approach for countering. So... Tell us more about this. I'd love to hear. Well, the team of teams addresses the question of how in action deal with uh, information warfare, either to counter somebody else's actions or in order to advance your own strategies. Uh, In the United States, the government is very large and its authority is divided among different departments and agencies, principally the National Security Council, which operates for the White House the Department of Defense and the Department of State, and then there are other players. And you get into debates as to who has jurisdiction over what. Uh, If the Martians landed on Earth tomorrow morning and they decided they were going to uh, eat up everybody in the world, and you had a big debate, uh, the first item on the agenda would be who's in charge of the meeting, and the second item would be how much money do we have, and the third item would be who gets what money. Item number 17 would be, how do we stop the Martians from devouring all of us? So you have bureaucratic problems with governments. Smaller governments are able to act more easily than large ones, but a really large government like ours has difficulty, I think, putting together a cohesive strategy and then finding a way institutionally to execute it. The team of teams idea first emerged in, uh, during Ronald Reagan's administration as president and became famous when General Stanley McChrystal used it in Iraq in order to gather intelligence against al-Qaeda and then to rapidly act on that information to take out members of al-Qaeda. Uh, his unit in that and a similar one by SAS probably accounted for a lot of the uh, casualties that the uh, insurgents sustained during that battle. So let's fast forward to how do, what do we use it for today? If you put together a team of teams that's chartered to have a specific mission answerable, in my view, in this country to the National Security Council, then you can have a team of experts drawn from within government and without government and from different agencies. You could have some from the Pentagon, some from State Department, maybe USAID, you name it. 
And but what it would be is a team that's uh, chartered to deal with very specific problems that are raised by information warfare, whether offensively or defensively. All right, I learned something new now. <laughs> so, it's a way. It's a way. It's a way of cutting through red tape and bureaucracy mm-hmm. in order to have efficiency. So, like governments now, just preferring this type of warfare to other types of warfare. What do you think? Like, is it like? I mean, it makes the headlines all the time, like China versus United States, like uh, Chinese hackers, like trying to U.S. vaccine search, this kind of stuff, and people trying to steal open source information, someone closed information, like intelligence, that kind of stuff. How do you think is this going? Like, is it like is it going to be around for a while too? Information warfare. It's always been around. It was around in ancient times. Mm-hmm. Go back to ancient Rome, to the time of uh, Cato the Elder in uh, uh, 94 BC. Uh, he used information warfare, as did most of the aspirants for power in ancient Rome, in order to gain power. In the case of Cato, he argued that the influence of Greek culture on Latin was diminishing the uh, power and, uh, and the uh, vitality of, uh, of Roman culture. He used, as do so many people, that the empire is declining, and if you put me in power, we will have renewal. Gracchus did the same thing in 34 BC. The argument was that the rich have profited at the expense of the poor. He was a populist. And again, he ran on a theme of decline and renewal and gained power as a council on that that message. I mean, you can go far throughout history. In, In 1573, Queen Elizabeth sent Francis Drake around the world in order to say to communicate to Spain which also depended upon maritime commerce for its own empire, that Britain ruled the seas. Cardinal Richelieu used information warfare, playing on nationalism and pride of France, to play what was strategically a weak hand that France held in the 17th century into a position of of strength. All sides in World War II used information warfare. When George H.W. Bush went into Iraq, you'll remember that he demonized Saddam. That was critical to his ability to create unity at home and to put together a viable international coalition to fight Saddam. So historically, it's always been there. Here's what's a little different today from what used to be the case. Historically, most people used information, story, narrative, theme, and uh, message to support kinetic operations, that is to say, armed conflict. What has changed in the last few years? is that that balance has shifted. And now, in more recent times, we are seeing narrative be primarily what is important and that armed conflict is used to support narrative. So the stalemate that existed between, say, 2014 and up until six months ago suited strategically the message that he wanted to convey. Now, that has all changed in the last six months with the arrival of however many Russian troops, I've seen estimates ranging between 100 and 175,000 on the border between uh, Russia and and Ukraine. Once again, he's using the disposition of of troops to send a message that he views the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO and its evolving relationship militarily with the United States as a, quote, existential threat. That's his words, not mine, to Russia. He views Ukraine as part of Russia as vital to Russian security interests. And he is using his rhetoric and he is using maneuvers of his troops to signal to people 
if we don't do something about this, it will lead to armed conflict. Now, nobody knows what President Putin will do, but the point is he's using information in its different forms to signal what he's doing. He did the same thing in Syria. The Russian intervention in Syria is fundamentally an exercise in information warfare. They made a lot of publicity about revitalizing the port of Latakia, sending in all these great new Russian weapons to help Assad and sending troops in. The fact of the matter is that he's done that on a very limited scale. He is not Stalin. He does not have the authority to spend Russian lives endlessly. He has to be sensitive to the fact that Russians don't want a lot of Russian casualties. And so he's been very limited and strategic in his use of that. But what he's doing is using that intervention to bolster Russian prestige and standing and influence in the Middle East and to send a message to the international community that Russia is a power that has to be reckoned with. If you change the focus to China, China's entire doctrine of warfare rooted in Sun Tzu is that if you have to fight, if you have to engage in armed conflict to win, then you have lost, that the supreme victory is one that you win without fighting. And so its doctrine uses uh, lawfare, media warfare, psychological warfare, economic, political, and diplomatic pressure in order to advance Chinese goals. It is the use of information integral to a coherent strategy that it has articulated that it relies upon to achieve national goals as opposed to armed conflict. Those were just, we could find plenty of other examples, but those are just three examples of where information has become more important in achieving national interests than armed conflict. Yeah, very well explained. Thanks for that. So how do you describe an influence operation? Is it about weaponizing social media only or like, I mean, I'm talking about today, of course, maybe it, it is also around since ancient times, but today with the rise of social media, with the rise of digitization of information, do you think an influence operation conducted by weaponizing it, weaponizing social media? Well, weaponizing social media is one form of information warfare. Hmm. And where you see that is through Russian or Russian proxies engaging in the internet and using it to create disruption in Western Europe with the goal of just that, creating disruption, eroding confidence in political and social institutions. The same thing was true with Russian meddling in uh, American elections in 2016 and since then. So influence operation is also part of information warfare. So just to clarify for our viewers, like, sorry, for our audience who is not familiar with the terminology. Yes. I mean, anytime you're using information warfare, what are you doing? You're trying to influence the attitudes, opinions, and to shape the behavior of a target audience. Uh, Now, generally speaking, one has to be careful about overgeneralizing. One should avoid formulas. Information warfare is an alternative to armed conflict. For example, in China's doctrine of, of warfare, China aims to become militarily dominant by 2049. It's not that China wants to engage in warfare, but it will use its uh, military strength in order to back up its political, diplomatic, and economic efforts. It's an intimidation tool that it uses. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't use it if they felt a need to, but generally speaking, China's approach is to avoid armed conflict and to achieve its goals through other ends, and I should say through other means and other ways. All right, James Fowell, it was a very fruitful and productive discussion for me and for our audience as well. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.